Well, hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 118 and I am flying solo this morning. Ben is uh, he's at work and this intro had to be recorded, so it's just me. I apologize because I feel like I'm not nearly as funny or interesting as Ben, but this is me. You've got me. Today, I have a conversation with Mel Tuali, who is the coordinator of Fashion Revolution Australia New Zealand. And this is another uh, another episode where I decided to go really deep on a specific issue. So we had the fermenting episode last week with Jamie, and then this week we're talking about specifically uh, ethical fashion, how to, to start shopping ethically, what it actually means, why we need ethical fashion. And uh, I also talked to Mel about the, uh, the, the fashion revolution movement that she's a big part of, why it was started, and that goes back to the Rana Plaza collapse a couple of years ago. But it's just, I don't know, I really loved this conversation, partly because I, I'm just personally becoming far more interested in ethical fashion, and I think the need for it is becoming more and more evident to me the more I research and, and start to understand what fast fashion is doing to the world. But I, I, I also, <laughs> I've always been conflicted because the more you start researching, the more you realize that the system is completely broken and there are a whole different range of reasons that you might want to start exploring ethical fashion. It could be animal welfare, it could be uh, you know fair trade, it could be looking after the people who create the clothes, it could be organics, it could be regenerative, regenerative farming, all of those different things. And if we focus on like, if we pull out and look at the, the big picture, it becomes incredibly overwhelming and it looks like we can't buy anything without feeling guilty about it. So Mel and I talk about that quite a lot in today's episode uh, and she has some really good advice on, on how to avoid that feeling of being completely overwhelmed and completely terrified that we're you know doing the wrong thing. And much of this conversation is based on questions that you guys have asked, actually. I put a call out on Facebook a few weeks ago uh, asking about, you know, any specific questions related to fashion, ethical fashion specifically. And man, you guys ask some of the best questions, I swear. Mel was completely amazed, I guess, by the, the insight of the questions that you chose to ask. And we get into some really specific bits and pieces about ethical fashion that I, I've been curious about myself as well. And I don't know, I just, I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, before we jump into my conversation with Mel, a couple of things. First, there's a whole heap of uh, resources and links that we discuss in today's episode. So I'm going to put a big list of those in the show notes for today's episode, which will be at slowyourhome.com slash 118. While you're there, if you haven't yet done so, uh, check out the simple year as well. We've got at this point in time, there's three or four days until the early bird registration for simple year closes. And if you haven't heard me talk about it over the last couple of weeks, it's a year long, simple living, a guided simplicity course. I'm teaching one of the modules, which will be the January clutter module, but, uh, Courtney Carver, the guys from the minimalists, Colin Wright, uh, Kate Flanders, Erin Somerville, whole heap of really awesome, Simplicity advocates and writers and bloggers and experts are coming together and sharing their insights, their teachings, and then homework and things like that each month. So if you're interested, it is a, I think it's a 25% discount at the moment, which ends mid-November, but head over to Slow Your Home 
and the top menu has a link to Simple Year 2017 and you can check that out as well. But in the meantime, go and check out what Fashion Revolution is doing on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. They're always asking this amazing question of who made my clothes. And I think it's probably one of the most pointedly apparent but completely disconnected thoughts that I've had about fashion. Because, you know, you ask the question, who made my clothes? And then you think about what does their work like look like? What does their pay packet look like what does that afford them what you know what what is their their you know standard of living like and are we helping to improve that by the purchases that we make or are we actually impacting that in a negative way so over on all the social media channels fashion revolution do an amazing job of highlighting that they profile brands who are doing amazing things with ethical fashion so i'd highly recommend that you check them out but in the meantime enjoy the podcast I'm really well, thank you, Brooke. How are you? I am very, very well. I'm so excited to be talking to you this morning because, I mean, you and I have been back and forth for a couple of months about the work that you do at Fashion Revolution and, you know, the the fact that we wanted to get you on here because we were getting so many questions from listeners about ethical fashion and what it actually looks like to start supporting ethical fashion in, you know, an everyday kind of way. So Mm. I'm really chuff that we can we can sit down and chat about it uh, and you know learn a bit more about ethical fashion because everywhere I'm turning now I'm seeing people and brands talking about it which I think is testament yeah. to the work that you guys do which is amazing thank you yeah I think that the tide has certainly changed the amount of um amount of articles now on media and not just you know ethical blogs or alternate media sources but mainstream press are covering the issues of um, the fashion industry um, quite a lot now. So it's, 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 there's lots of regular coverage, mm. which is really, um, really quite different from quite a few years ago, that's for sure. Yeah, it used to be like a very niche sort of topic, didn't it? You'd get your, your ethical bloggers or people who were you know, invested in a particular area of manufacturing who would be talking about it. But now it's just like it, yeah, it's, I think... it's a, a selling point, I guess, to mainstream rather than necessarily a selling point to just niche kind of areas. Yeah, I think uh, I think in, in days gone by, it did have that sort of um, hairy hemp tag attached to it. You know, that real, that sort of alternative lifestyle um, category of consumer and 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 people sort of living organic lifestyles, and that they were quite um, unusual. But it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly. Um, uh, crossed over now into into nearly the mainstream fashion industry and um, the biggest brands in the world are talking about sustainability and responsible supply chains um, and that that wasn't the case before and I think mm-hmm. that you know I think the Rana Plaza collapse um, has a lot to do with that I think that was um, a real line in the sand that what was known about you know certainly these issues uh, are long-standing and there's been a lot of um, garment accidents pre-Rana Plaza, um, but the amount of people that knew about that were, were quite small. So I think when that hit the news, uh, the visibility of the issues mm. in the fashion industry really, really, really ramped up. And is that when Fashion Revolution was started, after the Rana Plaza collapse, or was it, you know, as yeah. a result of that? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, Rana Plaza happened on the 24th of April and in about um, August, September, they were starting to talk to people and originally, yeah, it really was a day. It started as Fashion Revolution Day um, being the um, 24th of April, the day of the collapse and to commemorate the lives lost and certainly no one at that point, um, I have been involved since that very first um yeah, nobody had any idea it would be as huge as it was and we ended up kicking off with, I think, 55 countries in the August, the year later, so the first year anniversary. So 55 countries around the world um, had events and uh, physical events as well as uh, online activities. So, yeah, it really it really just hit, hit a nerve and Carrie and Osler were, you know, really just so passionate about the fact that this scale of, of life that had been lost should not just be go down in history as just yet another garment accident. Yes. Um, it is the largest loss of life in that industry and they really, really couldn't see it just just falling into being another statistic. So that, that was sort of the genesis of it and it, it all kind of, it's rolled very, very organically. Um, it is still a 100% volunteer-led movement. Um, we're now in, you know, I think over 93 countries. Yes. Yeah, we volunteer coordinators all around the world. So it develops organically, but there's such an incredible team back in the UK as well that have really put together something something pretty impressive. So I think it's 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 caught the attention, it's caught that zeitgeist, which has been fortunate because it, it is it is such a massive issue and I think to date it really hasn't it hasn't got the attention that it needs. And is that why you personally wanted to be involved as well, just to start drawing attention to the inequity and the you know, the injustices that are happening? all in the name of fashion. And we just, you know, in the Western world, typically we're just not aware of it. Is that part of the reason that you personally wanted to be involved? Look, I've always had, you know, a very strong sense of social justice. And, and I, when I actually met Karen Osler, was in London at an ethical fashion conference um, in that August, just after the run had happened in um, when they presented the idea there and I was actually running a um, fair trade and sustainable product store in Sydney that I had been running for about four years. So I was always very, I was already very much um, in the vein of, um, you know, um, trying to counter the injustice that happens in trade and it wasn't in the fashion industry, um, my retail store, but certainly whilst I was in um in the in the shop and I do lots of research I really saw the this great groundswell of change happening in in fashion um just in terms of recognizing the injustices in the industry um and then all of the sort of brands that were starting to creep up as trying to counter that trying to be solutions to the issue um and then when Rana happened it just really accelerated that desire to try to try to play a part, yeah, in informing and educating and raising awareness of these issues in much more of a, a larger global context than I could do in a, you know, um, small town store. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, in Sydney, there's a limit to how much you can you can raise awareness and, and agitate for change when you're you're a little retailer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you get you get a number of people coming together and asking the same questions in a world like on a world stage and people start to pay attention. And I really I, I really love the like the call to action, I suppose, of Fashion mm. Revolution, which is, you know, who made my clothes as well. I think that's yeah. Uh, I, I, it just it just pulls into focus so clearly the question and the the issue of this disconnect between exactly us, you know, as people who buy the clothes and wear the clothes, and the people who make them, and we have no idea what what their livelihoods are, you know, are, are 
are like, what, what it looks like for them to go to work every day, if they're paid a living wage, you know, if so, what does that look like? And I think it's just mm-hmm. brilliant. I really do. Yeah, it was it was really clever and really, like you said, it speaks to the, the whole reason of why we're doing this is to remind people that there are faces behind our fashion, that there are humans with the same needs and desires and wants and goals and hopes for their lives as we have but aren't afforded those given the conditions of the industry that they work in. So it really was a really simple, simple question, getting people to just to, to, to stop and actually think, yeah, who did make my clothes? Mm-hmm. Who is behind this? Which we don't give thought to and particularly at the pace that we consume now, um, we give you know much less consideration to to those that are that are you know toiling away in the factories exactly particularly when you're looking at things like really trends driven fast fashion you know really quick turnaround highly you know disposable fashion we just we don't think about it when you i guess when you you pick something up that's handcrafted and maybe uh, like it has a story attached to it you you feel the fact that there was a person on the other side of it but when when it's this kind of highly disposable fast fashion side the same thing there were still hands yeah. that made that but we just we're not aware of it necessarily I don't think the the connection's there so it's yeah, it's like a it's, it's sort of like unconscious consumption, and you know that certainly that certainly extends to all industries. And you know, there, there's a person behind every at every factory line. There's somebody you know putting something in a box. I think we still think that everything is 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 robotics and mm-hmm. everything just happens by machinery. But there are people you know at the packing stage, um, even at operating those machines. So there's there's lives all along the value chain, um, and and we really forget that all the time. And I. I that sense of connecting people to the makers was something that I really um, had such a um, strong um, connection to when I was in my store because every product I sold had a story, had a backstory. And for me, it was really, I was I was a storyteller more than a shopkeeper. And it was seeing people's eyes light up, particularly as, you know, a lot of the products I sold were for the develop, from the developing world. And, you know, often they would come from waste and just seeing how resourceful people could be and what they could, the beauty that they could create out of, out of items that you would consider trash or waste uh, and learning about their livelihoods and, and, you know, what this community group's doing or what that producer group's doing. I really saw the power in those stories and how that really resonated with people. And so, yeah, I think that the power of storytelling behind our fashion equally so changes our relationship to clothes and changes the nature of how we purchase. Yeah, and I think we just become less heavy-handed in terms of our disposability of stuff like if we start to feel the the fact that there was someone behind that and someone's you know work gone in gone into the things that we own I don't know I I personally feel like it's there's a lot more weight to it and you're far less inclined to just buy something for one wear and then let it go or buy mm-hmm. something never take the tags off and then donate it six months later or whatever yeah you know, whatever that looks like so yeah I mean I think with ethical fashion it's a, a an umbrella term that can really kind of cover quite a few different issues in the fashion industry, kind of. So it can be very much about the people, you know, fair trade working conditions, but then also sustainability and environmental impact and organics and, and chemical usage and things like that. Does fashion, first of all, does fashion revolution cover all of those, the awareness of all of those? Yeah, we've we've certainly, you know, I think in the first year it was very, very centred on Rana Plaza and Bangladesh and labour rights um, and certainly, you know, the labour rights issues extend all along the supply chain um, and are not isolated to any one country. But since since that first year, you know, as you start to talk about the issues, you really, you really start to realise that environmental impacts also impact the actual humans um, in those environments and so labour rights and environment 
environmental rights are really quite intertwined. And so as we've gone gone along, we discuss a lot of issues. You know, we're, we're very um, very conscious of textile waste and informing informing consumers what they can do post you know useful life for themselves once they want to dispose of fashion um, the wastefulness that's within the industry before it even gets to it gets to the shop floor the chemical um, output of the fashion industry and the impacts that's having on on livelihoods as well as environments mm-hmm. sorry about that <laughs> So yes, we definitely now uh, have a very broad broad remit about all of the issues um, because you know a, a safer and a cleaner industry for all is 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 important as much as um, workers' rights um, and conditions in in factories. So yeah, the, the gamut now is 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 extended across the whole scope of issues, and and there are many. <laughs> yeah, there are, and I think that's one of the things that that I think the more you start to explore the the issues the more you realize there are you know which endless it, it, it is and it's sort of one of those things where you you know ignorance is kind of bliss it's it's not but it's it's bliss in that you oh it is yeah it is, you, you become aware of just how broken the multiple systems are that are in place to support this this industry and it's sort of almost feels too overwhelming you know if you look at it as a whole and I know even just from talking to listeners who are interested in starting to support ethical fashion they mm-hmm. will often say like, I I don't know where to begin you know do I need to which priority is more important is it people is it environment is it yes. trade is it local is it organics is it you know and do you have any <laughs> advice for people to just begin their their kind of exploration of it yeah, yeah, it can be overwhelming. Certainly at the beginning as well, I, I felt that I was like, "Wow, this this just goes on forever and ever and ever." Because you just find out about one issue and it leads you to the next issue and the next issue, and then you sort of sit there a bit dumbfounded, going, "Oh, I actually don't know how I can even <laughs> tackle this." And I suppose my advice to people is pick your passion point. So if you're really passionate about animal rights, if that's something that is one of your greatest concerns, you might be vegan. Um, you know, start start researching around vegan fashion and and alternative. Um, alternative materials to animal animal fibers. If you're really passionate about labor rights, look at you know fair trade fashion brands and and which brands are addressing their supply chain visibility and transparency. If you're worried about the environment, uh, you can look at brands that only use fibers and textiles which have which call um, like organic cotton and like hemp and, and choose to use natural or veggie dyes. I think that you have to start at where, you, where you're most passionate about because that's what will actually make the most difference. If, if you're you know, just picking an issue because you've heard it's heard it's one of the one of the biggest biggest issues, and it's not really something that resonates with you. That sort of connection is going to be short lived. So I always sort of say, we we've all got something that pulls at our heartstrings more than more than others, um, and we all know what that is personally. And I always say, let that be your drive. And then when you've sort of discovered the options around that one issue, you can start to investigate. The- and put, you start to put the pieces together and you think, okay, here's, here's this sort of biggest issue here, here, here and here. Now I kind of know what I'm looking for or what I'm, what I'm trying to avoid. Now I know that I can, I can be a bit more um, defined in my searches, you know, for what I want. Um, and I, I, do, I do believe it does take research. I think that if you're passionate about this and you are serious about it, you do have to put some effort towards it. And there isn't there isn't a quick solution. There isn't a quick answer. I don't I don't really believe that 
you know, there's some rating systems out there and guides, and I think they are really great as a sort of initial stepping stone. But I, I strongly believe that these issues can't be conflated into an ABC or a one, two, three. Um, they are highly complex, and I know that not every shopper wants to hear that because mm. you just want to go in and buy a t-shirt and know that it's know that it's cool. But at the moment, until all of the brands and retailers around the world act responsibly and put only put on the shelf. Um, items that have been produced in a responsible manner um, and take, have to take that sort of decision making away from you because they've they've done it all for you, which is which is the ideal case. Until that point in time, you do have to do your individual research. And you know, I suppose my point of view is you need to start considering your your clothing purchases as investments. Yeah. And like any investment, you usually do a bit of research. If you're going to put a bit of cash behind something, you think, well, I want this to last. I often talk about, you know, the analogy of like a white good. If you're going to spend, you know, um, a few hundred dollars or more on a washing machine, you certainly don't want to have to replace that in three months' time. So you generally would kind of do a bit of research, look at their energy ratings or savings, look at their warranty cover, um, that kind of thing, because you want to know, well, I actually want to hold on to this for a few years. Um, I want to know what, what the standards are and what quality I'm buying into. And I kind of think the same thing for fashion, and I know that probably sounds a bit silly given the price points of what we buy, but I do believe that if you if you if you do want to um, shop responsibly, it does take a bit of research. Mm. Um, and the fact is that those answers are all out there now. You know, Google's an incredible research uh, sorry tool, and whilst greenwashing exists, a little bit of a little bit of nous can sort of show you what's paper thin in terms of info. I'd love to move into some listener questions actually because the first you've just basically kind of addressed perfectly one of the first ones that I'd like to ask you. And we <laughs> I did put a call out on Facebook for for questions about ethical fashion in addition to some of the ones that I get quite frequently and I do have quite a few so I <laughs> if we can kind of move through them in a you know a relatively rapid rapid fire but otherwise you know I know we'll be able to point people in the direction of resources and things in the show notes but the first question is really aligned with what you've just said how I mean we could go we can google right and we can we can say you know how is brand x are they ethical something like that but is there any kind of language or any any red flags I suppose that we should be aware of in marketing material or in you know rating systems that that kind of highlight the fact that maybe brands aren't doing the, the job that they're saying they are trying to do? You know, is there a way to? Yeah. I think in this in this um, era that we're in now, which, which you know, is, is three, three and a half years down the track from Rana Plaza, we've seen a great uh, deal of, uh, a great increase in the amount of information that brands are putting mm. out on their websites. Um, and that's that's really changing quite rapidly. And I think, you know, one of the one of the very first things I always say is if if you go to the certain brand that you're interested in, have they even got a section on responsible mm-hmm. sourcing? Have they got a sustainability tab? Have they got ethical CSR? Any of those links at least will give you an indication that brand is doing something yep. um, because there's tons of brands that don't talk about anything to do with um, whether it's environment or labour rights. So 
That's the first thing I say. And then when you get to that page, it says reference to being part of international stakeholder organisations and you won't necessarily know what those are, but it's a really good indication that they're sitting down at the table with other brands and other NGOs. Um, there's lots of charities in this space that are working with brands actively to help them. If, if they're sitting at the table at one of those organisations, that's a really good indication that they're genuinely partaking in some um, element of change. I think also what what we've seen, um, what, one of the biggest call-outs is for transparency and traceability mm. um, and a key metric of that is publishing their factories um, and publishing factory lists allow NGOs to validate any claims on the ground. So if they've got those addresses, they can visit those factories and if the brand has made a claim, um, they can actually validate that. And we've seen about, I think, even four or five brands, including Gap and VF Corp, Cotton in Australia, um, have published lists this year, more, more in six months than have ever been before at such a pace. So that's a really, really good indication if they're willing to publish their factories. Um, they're willing to be transparent we're not that doesn't mean that all the factories are perfect and they're not you know this there's no way to have a perfect fashion brand it's just it's just not possible but if they're willing to willing to promote promote that that's a really good indication and, and you know Nike have been doing that for many many years Levi's H&M do it now Zara um, they all publish and I think if they're and I think one of the one of the things that could maybe tip you off that it's that they're not so much looking at their supply chain but is a lot of brands might have a charity or, or a philanthropic side. So they might be building a school or they might be, you know, uh, helping a water well um, be dug. Those sort of things are, are great and, and philanthropy is, 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 is essential, but not if it's uh, at the cost mm. of actually addressing their own systemic issues in their supply chain. So I always, I always look to see if there's something beyond a, a charity cause or a partnership with a charity, if they're actually addressing their core I think that's such a yeah. I think that's such a, a, a like a, an important thing to pay attention to because yeah. to me, like you say, there's they, they're great things to be a part of, but if it's at what cost, you know, is it easier to establish a charity or a charitable organisation or work with a charity than it is to start to dig into you know their supply chain and start to to talk about transparency? I think that. That's, yeah. yeah, and it's it's labour rights. They're not sexy. It's not. It's not. There's not a sexy soul. Yes. It's highly, highly, highly complex. You're dealing with countries around the world, some of which don't even have a, a legal minimum wage, let alone a living wage, mm. that don't honour the right to associate, which is to form unions and have a worker voice. So you're, you're dealing with these, these macro issues and you're a brand um, subject to a country's, um, you know, norms and, and, and cultural norms as well. So it's, it's real. There's not a quick solve. So I'd be tempted to build a well as well. Yeah, not of course. The bigger issues but you know obviously overall we'd rather people have more autonomy over their life receive a living wage have decent conditions and then they don't need to be given a, um, a charity handout they can build their own will well because they're afforded the right to have have autonomy over their livelihood so that to me is always a sort of like oh, you know that's a nice to have but I'd rather you be addressing those core issues and you know if there's some brands that I could I could just indicate to people as sort of you know, demonstrating kind of best practice, I would have a look at Patagonia's website and their footprint chronicles and, you know, it addresses everything from materials to the environment to labour rights. Um, you know, Marks and Spencer, they have a, a very large campaign called Plan A. Nudie Denim, um, they've been organic since the start. They actually, they actually highlight the factories 
show the addresses, but also publish the audit reports, which is quite unusual um, because every factory, well, when the factories get audited, issues um, are uncovered and those form um, a, a plan to correct those issues. And I actually publish publish that as well. So, mm. yeah, um, you know, Reformation in the UK, uh, people might have heard of that, oh, sorry, in the US, um, they're pretty. They're pretty interesting. They have sort of a um, almost label sort of at each every time you go into a product description, and it'll tell you how much the environmental impact is of that item of clothing that you're wanting to buy. Stella McCartney goes into great depth about uh, the material choices that she makes, the partnerships that she's part of. Yeah. So there's some really good examples out there that even if you sort of took a look at a few of them, you'd start to see. Oh, okay. I can see now where some of the for- most forward thinking brands are at this. When I see others, I've got some kind of, you know, benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions that I'm asked a lot is how to do ethical fashion on a budget because almost, not always, but but often they are priced at a higher price point and you can understand why, you know, the quality is usually higher and they're like they're obviously going towards that money is going towards paying a living wage for the people who are manufacturing the clothes and everything else that it involves but how can people i guess embrace slow fashion on uh you know ethical fashion rather on a on a budget i would say that now more than ever you can do that really easily Mm -hmm. um that the prices have come down quite a lot in terms of like in comparison to conventional labels that are out there, um, you know, you might spend, you know, $100 on a pair of jeans. You can actually get responsible, responsibly made jeans for, you know, maybe 120 or something like that. But the price differential is not so huge anymore. Um, but I, I suppose even before that consideration is just to buy better and buy slower. So, if you buy slower, you're automatically um, you're automatically changing the way that you consume, and you can afford more. And if if there is a an item of res- responsible clothing that that you've got an eye on, and it might be you know a higher price point than what you you're used to paying, save up for that. You know, I, it's not like fast fashion has always been around. I I grew up uh, when I was at school and when I was with uni, and I couldn't buy five dollar t shirts or ten dollar t shirts, even twenty dollar t shirts. You know, they were minimum sort of fifty dollars. And if I wanted something, I used that really old-fashioned system called the lay-by. <laughs> and I literally had all these little lay-bys and I would, you know, have my little job after school and I'd save up and I'd pay off those lay-bys. And, you know, that whole concept of delayed gratification really works. Yes. You know, you, you you have to savor the, the the idea that, you know, the day that you can finally go off and pay pay that lay-by off and have that, have that T-shirt or that skirt. And... You know, I think that people need to, yeah, remind themselves of that. Fast fashion only evolved in the last sort of twenty years. Um, it's not, it's not been this um, model that's been around forever. So before fast fashion existed, we had to save up. Um, we had to, yeah, put things on lay-by, or we did shop secondhand. And yes. I don't, I don't mean it has to be the op shop. You know, there's some, there's some really sophisticated secondhand boutiques around there, around now. And there's also. Um, great a great solution is renting i love renting. yeah there's a business in the u.s called rent the runway um it's it's really amazing and i was in new york last year and i was just outside their shop looking in and it was jam-packed with women i couldn't i couldn't believe it so they actually have a shop front they're not just online and all of these women were jostling in there and they were trying on picking up and then returning and i thought wow this is this is a massive you know it actually is a massive business They've, they've closed 
quite a lot of rounds of funding. There's lots of companies that do that in Australia now as well, and I can I can share those links with you later to post. But that's a really great solution. You know, if you if you have an event, you have a black tie event, and you need to rent something, you need a gown, and you're only going to wear it once, just rent it. They're all um, of the latest designs and the latest designers, so they're not you know five years old. They're all current, um, and I think that's a really good solution that hasn't um, hasn't been around for so long. Mm. Um, no, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of hiring. I think it, it's fun too. You know, there's a dress that I would never I would never spend the amount of money on a on a gown that I would wear half a dozen times, maybe in its lifetime. I would just, yeah. I would never do it. But if I could spend it and I get to wear something really just beautiful that I you know, and it's maybe a hundred dollars something like that, I get to wear it to a wedding. Feel yeah, it's fun, and you send it back. You know, and and the resources that have been tied up in the creation of something like that are mm. then available to other people. You know, because when you look at like cost per wear and things as well, it's 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 such a clever way of, of doing it, I think. You know, I think traditionally renting has, has been in the sort of male black black tie category or bridal gowns and it really hasn't been something that, that women's fashion has, has caught on to. But now it's, yeah, there's loads of places doing it. And I think, yeah, like you say, the cost per wear, you know, there's there's a there's a trend also that uh, that came off fashion rev called 30, 30 wears. 30 wears and, yeah, and if, if you look at an item in a shop and you can say to yourself, yeah, I can commit to 30 wears. And for some people that might sound ridiculous because they wear something for years. But for a lot of people, you know, they might buy something and never wear it again. Mm. They'll wear it Saturday night and it, it's bottom of the heap. So you, if you can say to yourself, yeah, I'll get 30 wears out of that, then buy it, you know. Anything less than that, perhaps have a, have a second thought. So that's sort of my... Really great, really great tips. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think the other thing is convenience and the the idea of instant gratification that you spoke about. Because we want we want what we want, and we want a new shirt to wear out, or we've got a new thing, a thing happening, and we want a new. uh, We just go and buy it, you know. And there's very little consideration in where that's come from, but also what that's going to do in our wardrobe for the next three or four or five years. So I think just slowing down, you know, literally, literally slowing down, not even just going into the slow fashion side of it, but just slowing our thoughts down and thinking, do I really need this? Is this really going to, you know, to, to, to add anything to my life or, you know, anyone else's lives? So, yeah. And I think that, yeah, when you think about, okay, three three cheaper t-shirts I can get one that will last longer and of higher quality and if I know you know the conditions it's made in then the argument that you know I can't sort of buy more expensive clothing is kind of yeah solved by just slowing down and buying one instead of three exactly like I live in jeans for example and I spend quite a lot of yep. time figuring out what jeans I'm going to buy and I, I I literally live in them I'll wear them four or five times a week and they will last me years and when you break it down to the amount that that costs every time I wear it had I bought a 50 pair of jeans they might have lasted two or three months whereas you spend double that or a little bit more than double that for a pair of jeans that lasts years and it's far more far more effective and it also means you don't have to go looking for a pair of jeans in three months time as well you know it just exactly it's not my most favorite thing I will say though that you know just because we might pay more for something it's not a guarantee that it's made in so that's where that research element comes in so that you're wanting to you know affirm for yourself that yeah these are a higher price point because they actually are you know higher quality material but also I've checked and you know the standards of which they're made in seem to be far superior as well so exactly yeah yeah. that's it you know and I think sometimes people just equate cost with quality as well um yeah in terms of the product and the people who who are making it but that's not always not always the case so sadly no no it is yeah it is it's uh you know so if you I mean you dropped some brand names a minute ago one of the questions that people 
ask me a lot is most of the ethical fashion brands that they can find seem to be online. Are there any mm. that are kind of widely available in stores, particularly in Australia? We've got a listenership, you know, all over the world, but I guess particularly in Australia, are there any, is there anyone doing any kind of, yeah, commonly available brands that are doing a, you know, doing good work? I suppose um, Nudie Denim, you know, that's available around the world and I think everybody sort of pretty much knows that brand now. Um, like I pointed to before, um, they publish their factories and their audit reports. They're 100% organic cotton as well, which people may not realise. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been so since the beginning. So it's not a brand that has retrospectively looked into their supply chain. They actually started that way. Um, they work with some fair trade communities as well. So you know, I would, I would, I would look <clears throat> nudie. There's, you know, Levi's as well is actually doing quite a lot um, environmentally um, and with their factories, and they've they've also, you know, developed the waterless jeans, which I think saves about ninety percent, ninety six percent of water um, that goes into production. So, and that's another really, you know, widely available conventional brand. American Apparel has non sweatshop factories. Um, people don't sort of, I suppose, equate that to ethical fashion, but. Um, mm. There is, there is that yet yeah, visibility of their um, production processes as well. And I think that, yeah, the more, the more that you look at the conventional brands and look into them, you can see that they've, you know, even uh, Zara have come out with a sustainable fashion line now using organics and hemp and stuff like that. So it's not just the the ethical brands, not many of them are available, the, the smaller brands are available on the high street. Yeah. No, it's still very, they're still caught up on the, um, in the online space or the boutique space. And it's, you know, there's, 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 there's brands that aren't available globally, um, but have a greater visibility in the department stores, perhaps sort of like uh, Kit Willow, her, her brand Kitex, mm-hmm. um, that's available, you know, in the David Jones stores, Outer Known, Kelly Slater's uh, new brand, that's also available in department stores and David Jones. So it's, yeah, there's there's not that many of the smaller brands and it's because they don't have the volume and they don't have the scale. And, and when you're selling in large department stores, the demands are quite are quite voluminous, yeah. you know, the amounts that you've you've got to got to produce, um, and the, the margins uh, that you've got to meet. So it's quite prohibitive for the smaller brands. Um, but you know, there's there's some online. There are some new models. Everlane in the US, that's a direct-to-consumer model, so they've cut out the factories. So just going back to sort of affordable ethical fashion, uh, they highlight all their factories, but they they waive that middleman cost. So considering the quality of their clothing, that's really, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. price-friendly. But, yeah, I would agree that we've still got a long way to go um, in terms of finding finding brands that tick all the boxes in terms of environment and labour standards and being able to purchase those on the high street. I suppose that's why it's so important that – um, the large mainstream retailers are actually doing that with their own supply chains themselves. Yeah, and that's it. I think, you know, it's started, the conversation's begun. It's obvious that there's a demand for it, but the smaller, you know, smaller producers don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place. So it's it's fantastic and hopefully ideal that, that the bigger department stores and, and whatnot will start to, to get on board with their own their own brands, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's I think it's got to be a bit of a mix, mm. um, and it, and I, I'm sure it's not it's not that the stores don't want to pick up those smaller brands, but the smaller brands, yeah, themselves, like you say, may not have the infrastructure, may not have the volumes in place um, to be able to satisfy the scale at which those stores sell at, um, and that's that is really important, you know, um, a consideration. So I think it, it, a lot of it is still at the boutique and online level, mm-hmm. but. 
you know, the amount of people shopping online, it is increasing in the amount of brands that are offering returns and making that yes. making that solution a lot more attainable and, and accessible is increasing. So hopefully it shouldn't be shouldn't be prohibitive to you know, buying into it. I think that's the thing. I mean, it's kind of a convenience factor if someone's purchasing and they don't want to have to deal with, you know, returns and things. But I know I just in my personal experience Brands are making it much easier now to to buy online and return rather than yeah. you just have to suck up the fact that it was the wrong size or make it really difficult for you. And I do really like the idea of of supporting the smaller labels and the smaller boutiques, even if that is online, even if there is an additional step in in the buying process. I think in a way it makes you more mindful, first of all, so you're not going to just go out and impulse buy something. You're going to really think about it, which kind of minimises the stuff that you bring in the first place. But then also I think there's a, a really nice a, a connection there with a, a smaller brand and, you know, you may get a like a sales email from the founder or, you know, it's a really small team and it, you, I don't know, it's, it's just kind of being part oh, of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Like, you know, they are, they are the ones on the ground making mm. the change and they are the ones that are going through and I've, I've personally worked with um, small labels and the amount of effort that goes into ensuring that their supply chain is responsible is incredible yeah. and they do that at great cost to themselves usually and many of them don't make a profit and but they are some of the most highly ethical brands that you can find you know so I'm always always a proponent of supporting those small labels and and generally the quality is really really incredible yeah. as well you know because they can't afford to have products that aren't of high quality exactly um, so, yeah, the, the efforts that they go to and the ground that they lay um, for the rest of the industry to, to learn from is really substantial and I, I would always, always try to support those labels that are trying to make the change, definitely. Yeah, no, I agree. What about um, fair trade or ethical plus-size fashion? It's not something that I've seen a lot of. Do you have any anyone who's doing it well? Yeah, so... Um, I'll, I'll sort of throw out a few from around around the world. Um, I don't. It's not a huge market at all, mm. and it's a really good question. And it got me thinking. I was like, "Gosh, you're right. There really isn't. Um, there isn't a lot." There's um, uh, Eileen Fisher is an, a US brand, and people in America would be very familiar with that label. Um, and she she's very vocal about changing the industry and um, taking part in that um, and uses a lot of conscious fabrics. But she um, she has plus sizes. Um, Levi's even itself has a plus size range. Beth Ditto, she's a singer from the US. Okay, yep. Yeah, she's got her own label. <clears throat> That's all um, made responsibly in the US. There's also, you know, Bespoke. So Good Day Girl, um, they're an ethical clothing Australia accredited um, brand and they're here in Sydney and they actually custom make and they have trunk shows. So you can you know, have a look at the the range and then order and have it custom made oh, wow. to your own okay. size. Yeah, which I think is really incredible. And they've got literally got a physical space in Sydney um, where you can attend the show um, and then have have your items made. And Koto, it's not a plus size label, but it's certainly they do a lot of generous sizing mm-hmm. um, with their building blocks range. Uh, Gogia from New Zealand <clears throat> started that label. It's now available around the world in boutiques. Highly, highly. Um, responsible from using organic cotton to fair trade supply chains it's a really really beautiful brand um and the sizes yeah i I find are really generous um so yeah but yeah it's definitely not not huge that's for sure Mm. um 
So, yeah, that's kind of a few tips. Great. A few tips for now, yeah. Excellent. No, that's that's fantastic So I think it's just not knowing, you know, not knowing where to start yeah. with people. So I think that's great. And I'll yep. have links to all of these in uh, in the show notes yep. as well so people can, can go and visit them. One of the things that I've seen quite a lot of talk about recently is the – the other side of our clothing, you know, um, like all the clothes that we own, is the breakdown of the materials and how those materials are ending up in our waterways, even if we are buying ethically. And So do you have any kind of insight into the best biodegradable or environmentally friendly materials to start looking out for as well when we're, when we're purchasing? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing to think about is chemicals. Mm -hmm. So the conventional cotton industry uses about 25% of global pesticides um, and 10% of insecticides. So if you're thinking of cotton, um, immediately steer towards organic cotton, Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't use pesticides and doesn't require the volumes of water um, also that um, conventional cotton requires. Hemp is a fantastic fibre. It has a really great um, ROI in terms of um, how much yield you can get um, from land size uh, and also doesn't require any chemicals to grow and is fully biodegradable. Um, and it's a really old-fashioned fabric, but a lot more brands are using it. Mm. I just noticed um, Nudie, uh, sorry to bang on about Nudie, but they've actually just come out with some um, hemp denim, which I thought, oh, you know, once it starts hitting that kind of a label, um, you can see that more and more brands will start to look at hemp um, as a solution. Uh, Freitag's a pretty incredible German company. People might be familiar with their bags that were made from or are made from recycled uh, truck tarps um, from the sides of trucks, and they've they've started a fashion brand a few years ago and they developed the world's first 100% biodegradable denim. Yeah, really incredible. They chose hemp given the proximity uh, where it's grown. Um, Hemp is grown in Europe as well as China. Um, But they chose hemp over cotton for the denims because um, they were close by in Europe. They also created a, a rivet in the jeans so where the button the jean button is it actually pulls apart so that the jeans can become 100% biodegradable once you pull that metal rivet out which can then be reused or returned to them so yeah that's a, a fantastic example of uh, you know an environmentally neutral uh, impact material and they've done tests where you can you know um, bury it and it biodegrades obviously wool is fully biodegradable um, as well and then there's some great new developments of natural fibres. There's lots and lots of R&D taking place in textile innovation. Um, That's one of the biggest, the fastest moving areas at the moment because people have seen the impact of conventional fabrics. So things like um, pineapple fibre, Pinatex has been developed. So the waste of the the pineapple is actually woven into a fabric. Um, Patagonia have worked with a company who have developed a a fibre source called Ulex, which is from um, plants that are grown in the States. Um, And they have now, I think they've, they developed a wetsuit, wetsuit that was sort of half half Ulex and um, the conventional mm-hmm. wet material. And now I think they've developed a hundred percent or close to Ulex, which is effectively biodegradable. Wow, so that's wow. really, yeah, it's really really exciting. And you know, when you come to mar- when it comes to market, that's had probably five years of innovation behind it to develop something um, that that has the same qualities, that has the same um, longevity as those oil and petroleum-based materials do. So it's really impressive when you can fully replace um, a conventional product with something that, that 
won't um, have lasting impact. Silk's biodegradable. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's dyed with natural vegetable dyes, of course, and not chemicals. Um, and there's there's quite a few brands um, working with natural dyes now as well. And obviously other animal fibres, um, alpaca, all of those fibres are biodegradable. So it's really it's lo- it's looking at how they're treated, the chemical processes as well. Right. Yeah. Of course, because that's the other side of it. You know, there's you don't want yeah. you don't want to be seeing things in the ground if they're going to be leaching kind of toxic chemicals as well. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, bamboo is often called out as a great fabric, and it is a great fabric, and it, it, the yields are incredible. But um, it can offer also um, replace food crops in many countries. Mm. Um, um, which has disastrous impacts on local communities, but it's it's often the the and the processing of the bamboo itself um, can use a lot of chemicals. So there is bamboo that's available um, that doesn't, but that's a consideration that you have to look at. And, and that's just another you know another example of it's more the more you know, the more you kind of realise you need to need to know with these kind of things. But that's such a great place to begin for people. You know, it's know. such a like a great foundation. It's hard. I know. It's like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to remember that? That's why, you know, as more and more brands take on that responsibility themselves and start to deliver um, goods that you don't have to sit there and compromise your conscience at the till, yep. you know that they've done all the research for you. They've chosen the most ethically and res- environmentally responsibly sourced, you know, materials. That decision has has been made for you so you can purchase something knowing yep this is the right thing to get because there are you know i think for the for the for the the consumer average or not whether you're educated or not there's a vast amount of (laughs) issues that you have to take into consideration and ultimately compromise on more often than not because finding something that ticks all the boxes is is really rare it, it, it's it's great to see when the brands are taking that on themselves exactly yeah it really is you know i think i think that's fantastic um a couple of really quick questions if you don't mind before yep. we sort of wrap up but where once once people have you know they've worn their clothes they're no longer in a wearable sort of state do you have a suggestion of the most ethical or the best way to recycle or donate them when they're on the other side of of wearability Sure. So yeah, first point to remember is reuse is the the best option. It's the most least least energy intensive. When something has to be recycled, that requires energy. Mm -hmm. So where you can keep it in its natural existing state is the best way to go. And that means donating. So whether it's to op shops, local charity stores or local community groups in need, you know, Facebook, there's always lots of groups that are always calling out for items that are um, localized and you know there's no there's no threat of it sort of being shipped offshore. Yep. I think that's always the very first port of call. Retailers now have take up take back programs. Country Road have partnered with Red Cross and they do so each year. Um, H and M have their boxes and whilst they don't all go to charities, they go and get recycled. Um, you know it's one option. Zara have now uh, I think 2017 it's coming to Australia where you'll be able to return clothing to to them and they partner with charities like Oxfam. Um, but, yeah, it's important to remember that the, the charities themselves rely on selling these clothes for their funding. Mm-hmm. So um, I always try to suggest supporting supporting the charities first. Definitely don't don't send them to landfill. Um, it's the worst worst thing you can do. 5% of Australia's landfill represents textiles mm. and 95% of those textiles can be recycled. So it's just a complete loss of resources. It's a complete loss of, loss of all the labour that went into it, all of the water, all of the – um, land use, it's a total loss when you send something to landfill. Um, and, yeah, incinerating it is obviously even worse because that creates more pollution. So, yeah, definitely just recycle, reuse. Clothing swaps are fantastic. Um, 
again, social media is great and there's lots of groups. Um, I can give some links to groups in Australia that have regular clothing great, swaps as well. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. And just harnessing the resources that have already gone into it, you know, rather than Absolutely. wasting it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think one one final question, mm. the to kind of prolong the life cycle of the clothes that we do end up buying and bringing in, is there, a, you know, this is a question that I was actually asked by a listener, what's the best way to look after our clothes once we've got them so that they, they continue to, to serve us well for a long time? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I do is Think, think of what our mothers and our grandmothers, if we were so lucky to have them, um, did. Um, and, you know, first things first, they looked after their clothing. So, you know, back to my point before of treating an item of clothing as an investment and it's not as some disposable item to be thrown away. When you treat something as an investment, you look after it. And that means looking at the label. So those labels are there for a reason. They indicate to you what the best way possible is to look after that garment so you can extend its life. So, um, if it tells you to hand wash it, don't throw it in the washing machine. If it tells you not to mix it with other colours, don't do that because ultimately it's our fault if something um, ends up shrunk. It's our fault if something ends up being dyed, um, you know, the dyes run and it ends up at the bottom of our laundry basket. That's our fault. It's not the, it's not the, the, the item's fault. Um, they clearly give you those guidelines to follow and I think that we're – we don't we don't wash accordingly, um, so I think that's the first thing. But the other thing is to mend, mm. you know, ha- repair your items. I always say have a have a couple of alteration businesses in your black book. Um, I've got two that I go to. Um, one that you know I get all my jeans. I'm I'm someone like yourself that lives in jeans probably six maybe seven days a week, <laughs> um, and I'm forever getting them patched up because I, I don't like going out and, you know, I don't particularly like shopping and I don't particularly like buying things all the time. So I will buy something that is of a higher price point, higher quality, um, and repair that repeatedly yep. um, until it becomes so, you know, obvious or visible or it's beyond. Um <laughs> But even visible mending has taken off. You can hashtag visible mending on Instagram and there's incredible ways that people are um, um, making patches and, and stitches visible and part of the design of their clothing, which is really cool. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, definitely alteration businesses are amazing and, and it's also being taken up by the brands now. So Nudie um, have repair shops on the high street yep. where you can go in and get your get your jeans repaired, Patagonia have the largest um, repair facility in North America, um, massive warehouse, but they also, even in Sydney now, there's um, a repair lab um, and they have a vehicle that drives across the states repairing items. And it's not only their own brand, you know, they'll do their own brand for free but then charge you for another. So I've loved accessibility- watching the Warnware, the Warnware truck go across the states over the summer. It's been so cool. And to see the stories, you know, people have got Patagonia jackets from sort of the 80s that they're continuously getting repaired and yeah. yeah, board shorts from. <laughs> it's so cool. So, yeah, so you know, and that's that's what our you know previous generations had to do. They had to be resourceful, and it, it's what you see people in 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 the developing world do as well. You know, resourcefulness has to come to the fore if you want something to remain with you or to last. And that principle we should try to hold on to as long as possible. So um, I think, yeah, now, you know, repair repair alteration businesses they're really accessible. There's no reason why we can't can't start um, extending the life of our, our clothes by, by engaging with that process. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's just that mindset shift back to maybe sort of some more traditional skills as well and also the, you know, the idea of 
convenience and and wanting new and wanting it now kind of thing is just getting yeah. flipped on its head. And I think that- probably would also say when you're when you're thinking of buying the item, think about your behaviour. Yeah. If you're looking at a silk top that you know either has to be dry cleaned or hopefully by a green dry cleaner or has to be hand washed and you know that you're a person that is never ever going to hand wash an item because it's just not what you do then don't buy it (laughs) you're going to shrink it if you whack it in the washing machine or it's going to get smelly after multiple uses and you're going to think oh my god I'm never wearing that again so I always consider the actual fabrics when I'm looking at something as well and I think oh god this is this is actually going to require hand washing am I committed enough to always hand wash this (laughs) Or this is gonna, this is, has to go to a dry cleaner because of the pleats or all that sort of stuff. I actually think of that before I buy it because I think how much commitment I have to make to it, um, and that's always a really good test, a good test for me. Um, I've become, yeah, a, a, a very big hand washer, <laughs> um, and that's that's okay for me because the sort of you know the things that I buy they require that, and I'm sort of willing to buy into that. But I think that's a that's the first question you should ask yourself because many people don't spend a lot of time on that and that's okay so if you know that about yourself don't buy garments that require that it's just not going to work yeah such good advice uh mel thank you so much i've got other questions that you know listeners have, have put in and i'm just hoping we can put together a blog post with all of these resources and you know some answers and and, and links and things like that for people who are looking to uh to start exploring ethical fashion or start you know going a bit deeper into it but thank you so much for your time and for the work that you do and for, for all of the, um, you know, the resources that you've, you've shared with us today. It's been awesome. Oh, that's such a pleasure. It's um, been beautiful listening to your blog as well. So thanks for the sharing all the slow life stories with everyone and encouraging that lifestyle. And, yeah, really appreciate the support of, of Fashion Revolution and just say to everyone, follow along if they want to get involved um, because, yeah, there's, there's stuff happening around the world and it's, it's a really exciting movement to be part of. It is. And you guys are on all of the social medias, aren't you? I know you've got a big yes. presence on Facebook and Instagram um, and you've got your website, which I'll point people to in the show notes as well. But absolutely start following along because you guys are doing tremendous work. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.